If you are a guest, my name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here at Missio, at least until the end of December. And so um, I realized that this was a, this morning I was like, oh, this is the last one of the year for me. Um, and so already I feel like it's a, a little emotional message. And then on top of that, just kind of the feel of this morning for me. So bear with me. Um, it's that time of year again. The hallmark Christmas movie season. And so some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, come on, some of you know what I'm talking about and you watch these movies, right? If you've watched one of these Hallmark specials, you've watched one, you've watched them all, right? Um, but there's like 24-hour marathon. Look how many there are, and that's not even all of them, right? I found this Hallmark movie generator online, and I thought it was hilarious, so I'm going to read through it really quick. Here's the basic plot for any Hallmark uh, movie. Big city, career-oriented, recently single, world-weary, with um, a young guy, right? So that, that person is either a lawyer, a writer, a baker, an interior designer, or an early 2000s actor that we forgot about. They return, she returns to her, her small town or big city at Christmas time. And what happens is uh, she does this to inherit something, to enter a folksy contest, to stop some um, corporate closure. You've seen that one, right? Uh, to save the family business, uh, to appease their sassy friend or their widowed parent. And magically, falls in love. Two, with a sensitive uh, guy in plaid, Woo! right? <laughs> Kelly, I always think of Kelly when that happens. Uh, with an old flame, with some guy and his dog, uh, with a single dad and his precious child, with, a, with Christmas and the town and some guy, right? And don't forget, also, the only old man in town might actually be Santa Claus. Why are we drawn to movies like this? They're cheesy, they're one-dimensional, but I think part of that is that we watch them because sometimes we just need something simple, a simple story, a cleaned-up narrative, nothing too complex, something that we can wrap presents to, something we can decorate cookies to. If we're honest, our culture wants the nativity story to actually be more like a Hallmark movie. Somehow we want to romanticize, we want to Hallmark a story of a young girl getting pregnant out of wedlock, traveling to her husband's hometown, having a baby who happens to be the savior of the world and oh yeah and then they're surrounded by farm animals and rich guys bringing gifts we want to hallmark that and clean it up but the story of jesus isn't like a hallmark movie 
The story of the birth of Jesus is more like an epic story. The story of like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, which I've not watched either, sorry. Um, but those stories have more depth. They have characters and meaning. The characters are complex. They have flaws in them. The settings are dark and they're mysterious. The plot takes twists and turns and there's heartache and then there's celebration. That's the story of the gospel of Jesus coming to earth. When we hallmark, uh, when we hallmarkify, I don't know what the word would be, right? Or we romanticize this nativity story, we actually lose a significant part of the gospel message. We miss out on the depth of the good news. So today, um, actually this whole Advent series that we're going through is, is called Joy to the World, Narrative, uh, Nativity Snapshots of God's Gift to Us. What we're doing is we're taking snapshots of each character that we see in our traditional nativity story. Last week, Dom talked about the stars. This week, we're going to talk about Joseph and Mary. Next week, Vicky will talk about the wise men. Why does God choose to use these things in his narrative story, in this nativity story? If God is the director, and he is, and he is the writer, and he is, why does he choose Joseph and Mary? Why does he choose them to be the central characters of this nativity story? Who are they? What are they experiencing? What can we learn from them? So I'm going to jump around through different uh, gospel narratives of this story. And we're going to start in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. It will be up on the screen here. So Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take, Mar to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and she called his name Jesus. When you imagine the hallmark nativities, right, what does it look like in your mind? So many of us have this childhood memory that looks more like this. We're gonna pop it up there, right? A burned into our mind is Mary as a young pale-skinned woman, a beautiful woman, more like angelic, more like a queen. 
And that's part of kind of the Roman Catholic way of, of looking at afterwards, telling a story of and, and exalting these characters, right? But in our mind, we kind of start to think of Mary like this, or Joseph Regal like this. Or we think of the Hallmark style, this, these two lower pictures of a young married couple in love and quiet, and the baby makes no noise, no crying he makes, right? We clean it all up. But the reality of the story is that Jesus was born into extreme brokenness and chaos. Jesus is human and experiencing, experiences human struggles. He cries when he comes out. And his parents are human, and they experience all of humanity. Mary and Joseph are regular people. They're not royalty. They're not wealthy. We see this in Luke's gospel, in Luke 1, 26 through 32. An angel shows up to Mary. It says this, Luke 1, 26 through 32. In the sixth month of... Uh, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne for his father David. You hear this. Greetings, O favored one. Mary hears, greetings, O favored one, and she is greatly troubled at the saying and is trying to discern what this greeting might be. Do you understand? Mary is a nobody. She's a young girl in a poor town, no wealth, no power. She's a nobody. How is she, in her mind, saying, how am I favored? How am I favored? I am on the margins. Mary hears the word of the angels and the word of the Lord, and she believes. She would conceive a baby through the Holy Spirit, and she stays faithful to God. We have to understand that this is not easy. This is not an easy story for her. Who is going to believe her? She's now going to be a mother who would be ostracized, accused of sexual immorality. Can you imagine the anguish she is holding in her, 
wanting to celebrate a baby inside, a birth of a, a new one, yet at the same time knowing nobody believes me. Nobody will believe this story. She actually, we're told, runs away. And she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who's the mother of John the Baptist. But she spends like three months with Elizabeth. She spends time away. Some people think she might be hiding. Some people think that she might actually be attending to Elizabeth because Elizabeth is in her last trimester of her birth, her pregnancy. All we know is that she goes away. And we can assume she's struggling. Joseph, on the other hand, we see his story. Joseph is being told by his family and friends to divorce Mary, dismiss her and walk away. This is not someone you want to spend the rest of your life with. She is going to bring shame and dishonor to the family she already has. We can infer this from the cultural context. And we don't even have to go that far because we know in pretty much every culture, if this happens, it's shameful. If this happens, it's scandalous. If this happens, we ain't talking about it. So in Matthew 1, 20 through 21, it says this, but as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph chooses to believe the message of God, and he stays with Mary. He stays with Mary. You know this is not easy. We're told in Luke's account that Mary and Joseph have to pack, uh, to, to go pack and go back to Joseph's hometown uh, for a census. So everyone is heading back to their hometowns to be counted, right? And in the hallmark narrative of the nativity, they head back to Bethlehem. We see Mary and Joseph traveling afar, Mary sitting side saddle, pregnant on a donkey, and then the snow starts coming down. Is there snow in Bethlehem? I have no idea. I don't know how cold it gets, but that's what I imagine, right? It's cold, shivering, going into Bethlehem, and there's no room in the hotels. They go from inn to inn, they knock on doors, and finally an innkeeper, a nice old innkeeper says, oh, you can stay in the stable. You can go out and stay where the, the livestock are. And so they do, and then they have baby Jesus in a manger. Again, no crying he makes, right? That's the image that we have, but that's not exactly what happens. People are going back to their homes. The culture is for them to stay 
in the same houses as their families. They don't send family away to hotels or Airbnbs. What we see in the biblical narrative is this, Luke 2, 1 through 7. I'm not sure if I have that correct. Um, but let me read it to you. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to register each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. We're still talking about this inn in this manger. Where does that come from? Joseph and Mary show up at the residence. Think about how awkward this is. Mary is pregnant with the Holy Spirit's baby. None of Joseph's family really believes that. Culturally, they're responsible to show hospitality to guests and to family. And normally, guests and family get the best place in the house. You better believe there's some side-eye happening in the home. You better believe there's some whispering happening. Going, dang, she brought, she brought her. Right? Where are they going to sleep? They're not sleeping in my room. There is drama happening in this home. Again, where does this idea of a manger and an inn happen? I'm lost in my notes here. There we go. <laughs> the Greek word for inn is kataluma, a lodging space. So here's an image of a home back then. So the top part of this house is a cataluma, a lodging space, a place where um, that would be a bedroom, an upper room, a dining area. We're told that Jesus was born in a manger, which is the Greek word fatni. In that time, there was a spot in the home which was like a side part of the house where animals were brought from the outside, and it was this stall, this feeding area. So you got the fatney on the bottom towards the right side of the house, and that's where the stall was and where they brought in straight the, the, the animals to kind of eat. Jesus, Joseph and Mary did not get the cataluma of the house. They got the stall. And so Jesus was born in a manger, in a trough, in the house of David. Or I mean, a house of Joseph. 
that doesn't make a good nativity scene, right? It's not as pretty. And I'm not saying that we need to change our nativity scenes or these, uh, these children's pageants and, and change it all. I'm just saying the reality that we are facing, the reality of the story is drama. The reality of the story is brokenness. The reality of the story is chaos. The reality of the story is not hallmarky. The next part of the story as we read going forward is the part where the wise men come. I'm not going to spend time today talking about the wise men because last week Dom talked a little bit about the wise men and Vicky got a little bit upset about that because that's hers. And so I don't want to touch it too much, right? So the wise men come and they visit and we're going to pick up where uh, they leave and we'll fill in, we'll backfill that when Vicky talks next week. So this week, what we're talking about now is the wise men leave. And so we look at Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Now then, when they departed, the wise men, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in this dream and said, now here, I love, I found this picture that I had to use, and so I'm going to have him pop it up. Joseph holding baby Jesus. We don't get enough of that. We get a lot of Mary holding baby Jesus, but not Joseph. So the, the angel comes to Joseph and says, rise, take the child and his mother and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for and destroy that child. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. What's happening here? An oppressive leader, a political leader in Herod, is threatened by the murmurings of Jesus, a Jewish Messiah coming. So he says, go find this child. Go find this baby and kill it. An oppressive leader wanting to stay in power is so threatened by a nobody that he's going to do something about it, to hold on to power. So Mary and Joseph flee. They're leaving their homeland once again and going to Egypt. Can you imagine what this would look like today? This is what it would look like. According to Kelly Lattimore, an artist, this is his rendering of what it would look like today if Joseph and Mary were to exist. a holy family on the streets, refugees, la Sagrada Familia, the holy family. This is not a stretch 
This is not me being political. This is the word of God saying they were forced out of their homeland and went to Egypt. The Holy Family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were refugees. They were homeless. They were marginalized. They were pushed down for this reason. World powers wanted more power. The systems wanted to keep the marginalized down. Joseph and Mary are refugees, forced out of their homeland. The thing about the nativity story is that it does not tell us about all these nice and beautiful, happy times. It actually tells us of a very dark time when things were horrible and uncertain. So as we read this story through this lens, it may feel a little dark. It may feel a little more somber and honestly quite hopeless. You may be feeling the same angst today when you look at the war that is happening in Gaza, when you look at the political climate going on in this next election year here in the U.S., or maybe even closer to home, there may be that family drama. There may be broken relationships. There may be all those side conversations happening. Friends, as we enter into Advent, we remember that not all is right yet. And we still are having these longings for all of heaven and earth to be put back together by God, in God's vision. God is the great writer. He is the great director of this story. God brings forth at the table this vision of the weak and the powerless and declares his glory and centers them. God centers the marginalized. God centers the weak. God centers the ones that don't have a voice. What God is doing is he is creating an upside-down kingdom. He is being subversive. He has a message of, of a, a submersive message of peace and love and humility, opposite of what the world is trying to do. His power comes in love, his power comes in peace, his power comes in humility. It is a submersive, subversive message. But the culture at that time did not want it. The culture at this time does not want that. 
It's difficult as a Christ follower to say the gospel is true now, here, and now. When in the midst of what we're living, there is darkness. We have a longing, a prayer that we say, on earth as it is in heaven. That's real. That's real in our midst. When we are praying on earth as it is in heaven, we want that experience. We want that to come. It's not soon enough. There's an advent. There's a longing. There's a waiting. There's a, come on, Jesus, get here already. Maybe this advent isn't about this romanticized, hallmarkified native uh, nativity story. Everything is happy and go lucky and cleaned up. Maybe this advent is about the longing and waiting and the fulfillment of the promises of God. Does this Nativity story remind us that God is with us, that he is present and is working in the brokenness that we're experiencing. Joseph chooses to listen to God, even though the culture tells him to leave that woman. Mary chooses to trust God, even when she will be scorned and judged. Maybe you've chosen to listen to God and you still feel the brokenness. You still feel scared. You still feel like this isn't adding up. And that's where we believe and that we hold our hope is that Jesus is God, Emmanuel. God with us. That in your brokenness, in your pain, in your suffering, in the questions and the doubts, that Emmanuel, God, is with you. That is the story that we're talking about when Jesus Christ comes here on earth a part of heaven came in, and we're not done yet. He's not done yet, but he's with you. Feeling the darkness is so true of the Advent narrative. We anticipate the light, longing and waiting for the promises of God. Last thing. God didn't change the circumstances of the systems. Meaning that he didn't place Jesus in a position of power. He didn't place Jesus in wealth and power and mansions and castles. He put Jesus into common circumstances, into the brokenness of humanity. Why? The majority of the world can relate to this story. 
the majority of the world needs to hear a message of hope for the hopeless and the marginalized. We need to hear that God's power is for the powerless, that God gives hope to the hopeless. We need to hear that God's own son knows what it's like to be in darkness and in suffering. Jesus knows what it's like to be in the brokenness of family. He knows what it's like to be judged by community. He knows what it's like to be of, uh, pushed down by culture and the expectations of culture. He knows what it's like to be oppressed by the powers and the systems of the world. Jesus knows us in our brokenness. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us in the realities of our lives. He longs for the days when all the wrongs are made right. Yes, he is the answer, and he will make the things wrong right. But until that is fully experienced, we know that Emmanuel, God, is with us. Here's a couple takeaways this week. My first thought is, do you know and trust God that in our times of brokenness, darkness, and fear, that he is with you? Do you know that? Can you trust that? The second thing, are we making space for the marginalized? Do we have the heart of God that elevates the least to give them hope? During this Advent series, we're choosing not to do communion, but wanted to still create times of reflection. And so what I want to do is give us about two to three minutes to reflect on a couple of the images. Um, the Kelly Lattimore images of, of the Holy Family. And then also this one from Everett Patterson. It's called uh, Jose y Maria, the modern. And this image is, is just so, so today. Joseph, and Maria, Jose y Maria, in front of a 7-Eleven with no place to go yet. Thinking about entering into the house of Joseph. So as we reflect on that and reflect, reflect on some of Kelly Lattimore's work, I'd ask again, do you know and trust God that in our times of brokenness and darkness and fear that Christ is with you, that God is with you? And are you making space for the marginalized? Do you have the heart of God wanting to elevate the least, 
the last and the forgotten.